Well, greetings, uh, Grace Point Church and guests. Uh, today, as you know, Gary is on medical leave and he's at home awaiting his pathology report and is healing up from his biopsy surgery. So today we have a guest speaker, uh, Mark Bassett of our Redeemer Church in Ephrata has offered to uh, deliver a message for us not only today but in next week and also Easter Sunday. Uh, Mark Bassett is a friend of Grace Point Church and a, and a special friend of Gary and Don and so we are very grateful that he has uh, offered his support to us during this time and is uh, delivering the message for today. So let me pray for us. Uh, our Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you that we can be together this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Holy Spirit that is here to uh, guide us and to teach us and to uh, really enlighten our minds to the truth. And I thank you that we have the privilege of hearing your word proclaimed this morning by Mark Bassett. And I pray that we would listen well, that you would use these words to strengthen us, to build us up in our faith, that you would continue the work of sanctification in our lives and uh, through these, these words this morning. And I pray for Gary and Don. I pray for a great amount of peace and comfort for them, that they would have a strong faith as they wait on you. And really all of us at Grace Point are waiting on you for uh, these words, uh, the results of the biopsy, and uh, the indication for uh, Gary's future and uh, treatments that are indicated there. But uh, we just uh, entrust uh, these things to you and thank you that you have our, our, thank you that our future is in your hands. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for inviting me to participate in what your church is walking through right now. Gary and I have been friends for a while and have over the past year or two become very good and close friends. Uh, I preach a sermon this morning to Gary and Dawn, and Angela, and Lacey. And I mean that. I'm preaching a sermon that will allow you as a congregation at Grace Point to enter into this story and their story, but I'm really speaking to them. And in the midst of this sermon, you get to be a part of it because it applies to you too. We're all in this together, and it's very specific to what Gary and Dawn and Lacey and Angela are walking through, but their story becomes part of your story. But all of our stories are wrapped up in his story or history, God's story. I bought uh, Gary a book recently and took it to him um, after his surgery when he was at home. It's called David's Crown. <clears throat> I turned Gary on to Malcolm Gite, who is a Cambridge poet. And Gary reads him all the time and watches him online. And uh, he's also a theologian. He is also a person uh, that just uh, pulls people in as a chaplain there in Cambridge. This is from Psalm 105, which is a psalm I'm going to speak on here in just a moment in relationship to some other passages. Psalm 105, a poem by Malcolm Gite. Knotted and crowned in Christ and made divine as with creation, so with history. 
Through Israel's ancient tales, we trace Christ's line. From Abraham to Isaac, till we see in Joseph, Jacob's son, the one whose sum of life becomes itself a prophecy. A pattern of compassion yet to come. For he became a slave, was bought and sold, yet all his suffering was foreseen. His shame became his glory as his dreams foretold. And likewise, Moses foreshadows these things forth in stories of salvation that unfold for us the depth and meaning of our faith. Christ shimmers through these scriptures when our minds are cleansed and kindled by his Spirit's breath. Let's pray. Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, through the preaching of your word, that Jesus Christ would be lifted up. I pray that Gary and Don and Angela and Lacey would be encouraged, would be strengthened. I pray that Grace Point would be encouraged and strengthened through this word from the life of Joseph, from creation's story, from the word of Paul, and the center of our faith, Jesus Christ, who died, is risen, and is coming again. I pray this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. I want to this morning <clears throat> to take some passage of Scripture. I want to start with Psalm 105. We're going to jump to the Joseph story in Genesis 45 and 50. We'll go back to the creation story and ask some questions that maybe you're not familiar or not familiar with, but maybe you haven't asked yourself before. And then, of course, jump to the Christ event in Romans 8.28 that's run through it all. I want to attempt, and that's a key word, to bring these passages into an encouraging whole this morning. And we all need encouragement. Don and and Gary and Angela and Lacey, you need encouragement. <clears throat> My problem is, is I, I don't want to be trite. I hope I'm never trite or shallow to the struggles we all live and face. But any time Romans 8.28 is referenced, uh, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, I tend to get nervous. I have been <clears throat> on the wrong end, as I think all of us have, of good intention Bible quoting. I'm not going to attempt in this message this morning an intellectual problem to the issue of evil and suffering. Your congregation is suffering. Gary is suffering, Dawn is suffering, Lacey and Angela are struggling. I'm more than happy, of course, to dialogue with any person about <clears throat> the conundrum of evil over coffee. I'm trying to encourage, though, this morning, the heart more than stimulate the mind. Uh, I read C.S. Lewis on the intellectual issue, if you're interested, but even he said in the preface to his wonderful book, The Problem of Pain, the only purpose of the book is to solve the intellectual problem raised by suffering. For the far higher task of teaching, fortitude, and patience, I was never fool enough to suppose myself qualified. Nor have I anything to offer my readers except my conviction that when pain is to be borne, a little courage helps more than much suffering. A little human sympathy, more than much courage, and the least tincture of the love of God more than all. 
I'm not attempting to answer the unanswerable why question in a verse like Romans 8.28. I just want to place our questions, the question of Gary and Dawn and Angela and Lacey and the question of Grace Point and why right now they're walking through this mystery of God. I want to place our questions and us in the mystery of God and his love and involvement in all of our lives. And I want us to trust. David Wilcox sings, It is love who mixed the mortar, and it's love who stacked these stones. And it's love who made the stage here, although it looks like we're alone. In this scene set in shadows, I love that word shadows, we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Like the night is here to stay, there is evil cast around us, but it's love that wrote the play. For in this darkness, love can show the way. Psalm 5. Psalm, I'm sorry, Psalm 105. Psalm 105. It's a wonderful psalm. It's a long psalm. It's joyous. It affirms the beginning, from beginning to end, God's oversight of Israel's history. The Lord remembers his covenant forever, verse 8. He remembers his holy promise, verse 42. Names associated with God's saving are mentioned. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. The breadth of what God is up to, it's prayed. Psalms are prayers. Make known his deeds among the peoples, his judgments in all the earth. The work of the Lord is for a thousand generations. This is history being prayed, get this, as our history, as Grace Point's history, as Dawn and Gary's history. We who are in Christ belong to this story. This is our story. Galatians 3 tells us that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance, even to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you, Abraham. Praying forms us in living in history or his story. We pray our circumstances in and out of the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses. Prayers like Psalm 105 are awkward to us because we're so disconnected from the traditions of our faith and the prayers that go all the way back that even Jesus prayed. Psalm 105 recites and covers historical events as prayer from Abraham to the promised land. The story of Joseph is prayed in Psalm 105, 16 through 23. It's prayed, we call, he called down famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food. And he sent a man before them, Joseph sold as a slave, they bruised his feet with shackles, his neck was put in irons, till what he foretold came to pass, till the word of the Lord proved Joseph true. The king sent and released him. The ruler of people set him free. He made him master of his household, ruler over all he possessed, to instruct his princes as he pleased and teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. Joseph's life was not a bed of roses. 
He was sold as a slave. He flaunted his father's favoritism before his brothers, and that landed him in a pit. The brothers wanted to kill Joseph, but Reuben talked them out of it. And then Judah convinced the group to sell the younger Joseph to a caravan of Ishmaelites, just kind of cameling it down to Egypt. The group made up a story that a wild animal killed Joseph so their father Jacob would not be angry with them. Well, the Ishmaelites sold Joseph to Potiphar, an Egyptian, and in Potiphar's house, Joseph just flourished. He was trusted with great responsibilities. But his good looks drew attention from Potiphar's wife. She tried to entice him, but Joseph resisted time and again. The last time she tried to bed Joseph, she grabbed him by the cloak, and Joseph turned tailed and, and ran, leaving the cloak, the torn cloak, with her. Potiphar's wife used the cloak to accuse Joseph of trying to jump in the sack with her. Her accusations and Joseph's position as a slave left him powerless. He was jailed. Even in prison, the Lord was with Joseph, and he gained the trust of the warden in prison. We know he was in prison for at least three years. It was only through his miraculous ability to interpret dreams that Joseph was delivered from prison and given a place of honor in Pharaoh's kingdom because he interpreted Pharaoh's dream. And he began to prepare Egypt at that time for a great famine that was foretold in that dream. We know that story. Most of us do. The Psalm 105 prayer does not minimize Joseph's jail time, an important thing to remember. We are told they bruised his feet with shackles. His neck was put in irons. The word neck or throat is the same word in Hebrew as soul. Gary and Dawn have a beautiful German shepherd. I believe it's Chloe. I had a German shepherd. My kids did when they grew up. And my German shepherd's name was Betsy. And if you walked into the yard and Betsy didn't know you, the hair on the back of her neck would go up and she would growl and she'd show her teeth. And it would make you pause. But if I walked up and I just said, Betsy, knock it off. This is our friend. She would follow my lead and walk up to you and sniff you. And you would reach down and pet the top of her head and she would roll over and she would lift up her paws and she would bare her neck to you so you could scratch her throat. If Betsy was in a fight with another dog, she would go for the throat, the juggler. But she bares her throat to you if you're her friend. The soul is the place of vulnerability. The throat, the juggler, is the place of vulnerability. Soul, throat, throat, soul. It seems so weird that this soulish word is also a very fleshly word, throat. We're very vulnerable people. Joseph's soul, it says, was put in irons. His whole being felt the trauma of confinement. This double meaning just seems intentional here in the psalm. He was glad for his vindication, but its sweetness is heightened by the bitterness of his soul being put in irons. It wasn't just his throat. It was his suffering soul. No matter what good comes out of our suffering, or the evil we have endured, or the sin we have done, or the sin done to us, it is all evil and terrible and bitter. Romans 8.28 tells us, for us God lovers, in all things God works for the good. It does not say that all things are good. Cancer is an evil. 
Death is evil. It's the enemy of God. That's why Jesus came, to destroy the power of sin, capital S, and death, capital D. There may be a beautiful weaving from our Joseph's soul in iron experience, but evil is never to be called good. Because of the famine, Joseph's brothers had to travel to Egypt for food and were confronted by their sold-into-slavery-now person-of-power baby brother that could demand their heads on a John the Baptist platter. But he doesn't demand their heads. Joseph doesn't demand their heads. He weeps on their shoulders and tells them profoundly twice the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. Genesis 45, verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourself for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you, he said it again, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And when the brothers continue feeling insecure, Joseph's the one in power, wondering if Joseph will have a change of heart toward them, kill him, because of their past grievances, because of past grievances, Joseph reassures them in Genesis 50, 19. Don't be afraid, brothers. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done and save many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he assured, reassured them and spoke kindly to them. The book of Genesis ends with Jacob and Israel, Joseph's dad, traveling to Egypt and living there. And this is how the people of Israel become enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And then Moses, or Charleston Heston, Charlton Heston, if that's who you envision because of the movie, is sent to lead them out of Egypt. God preserves his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through Joseph's imprisonment. The Joseph story ends with him living in the reality of creation in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 and Genesis 50 are the bookmarks of what it means to live by faith. Joseph obeys in living faith the creation story. We don't often think of Genesis 1 as something we are called to obey, to live in, to immerse ourselves in, and, and face all of our doubts and confusions and chaos like what Gary and Dawn and Angela and Lacey are going through right now, and you as a congregation are going through. But Joseph obeys the creation story. God created out of an earth that was formless and void, and it was deeply dark. Kind of like what you're walking through. Life and livestock, lilies and ladybugs, people and pomegranates. God created out of all of that darkness. It was chaos. It was hopeless. It was a messy situation like our lives are most of the time. The chaos calls us to the crisis of belief in our God's resurrection work. He creates place that addresses the formlessness and the void. He creates light and dark on day one. 
He confronts the deep on day two and he separates the heavens from the waters. And God forms the earth on day three out of the formlessness like he's building sandcastles, dry ground and vegetation. But he isn't done. He's not done. On day four, God fills the dark and the light space from day one. He fills it on day four with the moon and the sun. He creates on day five sharks and salmon to fill the waters and sparrows and bald eagles to fill the sky, to freely fly and enjoy that space. And then God creates man and animals on day six. We creatures fill the land and sustained by the food from God's garden that he's created in this beautiful world. We live by faith in our God who takes the darkness and the disorder and the, the chaos and the formlessness from our lives and he fills it with meaning and goodness, and order, and purpose, and life. Because he's a God of resurrection. And we see it in Genesis 1. Are we obeying that? That's the question before this congregation right now. Don and Gary, you're asked to live that before these people. Lacey and Angela, you're with your parents in this. Joseph was in Egypt's dungeon. He was believing the God of creation was doing a Genesis 1 work in his Joseph chaos of formlessness, of darkness, of emptiness, and deepness. That was Joseph's experience at the end of Genesis. Joseph was by faith loving God in the dark dungeon of suffering. He was living out, and we know that in all things God works for the good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He was living by faith when he couldn't see any purpose in the story. The mystery is much easier to believe when life is smooth and sailing. Oh yeah, God is mysterious. But trusting and believing and loving God in our Joseph jails is where our faith is refined and tested and proven. It's that existential crisis. I wish we could see with our limited human vision, with, with our, what our limited human vision keeps us. It, it limits us from glimpsing. I mean, think of Joseph's story like this. If Europe had not invented ale before the Black Plague, before the Black Death, polluted the water of Europe, most of our ancestors would have died. If Hitler had gotten the atomic bomb, he would have destroyed the world. If your grandfather hadn't turned his head right instead of left one day and noticed your grandmother on the trolley, he would never have dated her, married her, and begat you. If one Egyptian tailor had cheated on the threads, if he hadn't cheated on the threads of Joseph's mantle, Potiphar's wife would never have been able to tear it, presented as evidence to Potter that Joseph attacked her, gotten him thrown into prison and let him be in a position to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, win his confidence, advise him to store seven years of grain and save his family, the seven original Jews from whom Jesus came. We owe our salvation to that cheap Egyptian tailor. Hmm. You see, when Joseph was in that dungeon of darkness and chaos and mess and formlessness and void, he was not seeing the big picture when Potiphar's wife held his cloak. Romans eight twenty eight 
It's a mystery to me. I have walked through the darkness of that verse with hundreds of people caring for people in Grant Adams and Lincoln County and hospice and other people in my congregations throughout the years. I try to, underst I, I try to understand life and that all things work for the good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose primarily primarily through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus loved God in his cross cries. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, into your hands I commit, I trust my spirit. Jesus, here, he enters the darkness of Joseph's dungeon, trusting and believing. And understand, Jesus' brothers abandon him just like Joseph's brothers abandoned him. We confess that Jesus was reconciling a broken world to himself through his death and resurrection. Cosmic goodness was the result of the torturous death of Jesus. Our God does not get a bye week when it comes to death, suffering, and evil. He hangs on the hook of chaos and darkness and emptiness, going all the way down to the depths of the land of shadows. This is history, and it's also his story, and it's also our story. It's this church's story. It's Gary and Dawn's story and their two daughters. When we pray the story of Joseph from Psalm 105, we pray Genesis 45 and 50 out of that creation, God speaking story. And we pray it all the way into the cross and Romans 8:28. See, when the pendulum swings forward, we find ourselves at the cross in the empty tomb. The whole story is a living out of Romans 8:28. But I have to admit, I wish we could just see more frequently how all the dots connect in our stories our personal stories, our congregational stories, the stories of those we love, like Gary and Dawn. I mean, don't you wish we could see those dots connect? It was in 2016 that my wife Carrie and I stayed at some friends in Spokane, John and Sharon. We were attending a pastor's conference at Whitworth listening to Dale Bruner. Our friends live 10 minutes from the university. Uh, John and Sharon are both PAs, and we met them in Moses Lake, where they had moved after graduating from North Carolina. They were our backdoor neighbors. We met during the snowstorms of 1996 and 1997. We, we put a gate in the fence between our properties. They had Seamus. We had Betsy. We'd open it up so our dogs could play. Seamus tended to do his business in our yard, but my dog didn't do it in their yard, so I was a little acrimonious. We were in Bible studies together. John would regularly at dinner time call to check in to see what was on the menu. He could see we were sitting down at our table. And if he approved of the menu, he requested a seat at our table. These are very good friends. So we sat around a fire pit, sharing a bottle of wine, and we talked about Christ and faith and our stories in 2016. I made a reference to my brother that lived and died in Newport, Washington, and Sharon looked confused. She had no recollection of the story, so I told it to them over the glow of a fire. 
It's a Joseph, Romans 8, 28, Psalm 105, creation story. My parents lived pretty wild lives until they came to faith in 1956. They had one child at the time, my brother, Len. He was 14 when they came to faith. They wanted more children, but it wasn't just it wasn't happening. And two years after their conversion in 1958, my mom had my sister. Len was 16. And then I came along four years later. 20 years separated me and my brother. Len married his senior year of high school because his girlfriend was pregnant. That marriage dissolved. He married shortly after the divorce his second wife. She worked for Legs Pantyhose until a bad pregnancy landed her on bed rest making pain bills tenuous at best. My brother was drinking very heavily and doing drugs frequently. During this time, his first wife, not his second, his first wife became pregnant and claimed that he was the father. He couldn't take all the pressure. He couldn't handle all the God talk from my parents. He never embraced Christ. As a matter of fact, he had outbursts of anger toward anything Christian. And then one day, he just didn't show up after work. After a week, he finally called his wife from California, his second wife, and said, he wasn't coming home to Detroit. Remember, she's on bed rest. This was 1969. He never came home. In 1970, my dad died at the age of 50. I was eight. Len called mom. A friend knew his whereabouts and told him of the tragedy about my dad. My brother loved our dad, but not so much our mom. He told mom, I'm not coming home for the funeral. He said, people will say, where is that no good Len or there is that no good Len? So he said, I'm going to save face and not come home. That was the last time he contacted any family. He died Memorial Weekend 1995. When he died, we lived in Germany. My wife and my two young kids, kindergarten and first grade. We got the call while we were visiting some missionary friends in Switzerland. I confess I was pretty angry and bitter toward my brother growing up. Our lives without dad, they were hard and they were poor. And he was off drinking beer and shirking adult responsibilities. Life would have been much easier with his help. By the, eight, by the age of 18, I had called my brother every word in the swearing book. Not to his face, though, because it wasn't there. I found out that my brother was alive, though, in 1989. And I have many connections now with uh, stories of others who knew him. We were in Moses Lake, pastoring, 1989. He was bouncing back and forth from his machine shop in California, where he had a business, to his cabin on 10 acres up in Newport, Washington. You see, in 1969, Len hooked up with Ron and Jan Jager in California, old high school partying friends. The Jagers became though passionate. I mean, hold nothing back Christ followers while they were in California after my brother had moved there. And it didn't make my brother happy. So at one point, though, they took a motorcycle trip back to Michigan where they grew up to tell family and to tell friends how Christ had transformed their lives and they stopped in to see my mom on 14014 
Trenton Road in Southgate, Michigan, just outside of Detroit. They told her Len was alive and they exchanged addresses. My mom passed the Jaggers address on to me in Moses Lake. Through the Jaggers, I obtained my brother's California address where he was, and I sent him a letter along with my dad's personals that I had been wanting to give him that I saved, hoping that someday I would. Wedding ring, my dad's wedding ring, and other jewelry and just stuff like that, personals. He was the firstborn son. It was his. I wanted to talk to him. I wanted to hear his stories about my dad. I wasn't that angry anymore. I just was hoping to piece together this mysterious narrative of my life. He never responded, though I know he got the letter because I sent it certified mail. I wrote a second letter telling him that his desired anonymity was safe with me. I wasn't going to tell anybody. I'd respect his privacy. My brother ended up dying alone on a mattress on the floor in his Newport, Washington home cabin, 10 acres of throat cancer. He had moved back there shortly after I had sent him dad's ring. He went back to work at a machine shop in Idaho over in Sandpoint. They had a new life insurance as a benefit. He, had used, to, he used to work there. He told them when they asked, who should we give this to if something happens to you? And he says, give it to my brother Mark. That's all he said, give it to my brother Mark. They wrote that down. I've always taken that line from him as a response to all my letters that I wrote. We left Germany five weeks after he died. We were leaving Germany in a war with the Christian Missionary Alliance denomination. We were, we were returning to the States with nothing. We had nothing. We had no money. We had no car. We had no furniture, no washer and dryer. We had no home. We were coming back because we knew it was the right thing. We knew this is where God was leading. But within the first month of our return, we received a check for $11,000. And with it, we bought all the things I just mentioned. Washing machine, furniture, money, I mean car, home. God saved us through my ragamuffin brother. Jan Jager called me sometime our first year back from Europe. And God told her to call me. I hate it when people say that. It makes me so nervous. Maybe it's because I'm now a Presbyterian. I don't know. But when people say that, it's just like, oh, good Lord, please save me from what they're going to say. <laughs> she said she loved my brother like he was her own. But understand, she said to me, he was wicked and a despicable man. She said, Mark, I'm not so... I'm sure you've thought that life would be easier with your brother around after your dad died. But God has told me to tell you that he wants you to know he saved you through your brother's abandonment. He, your brother, a drug, alcohol, porn addicted and God hater, would have been the most influential man in your life growing up. Just think now of the men God put in your life instead of him. I told this Joseph Romans 8.28 story to John and Sharon in July 2016 around a fire sipping wine. And Sharon, she stopped me in mid-story, perplexed, when I mentioned the Jaggers. She questioned, Ron Jagger? 
I said, yes, Sharon, Ron Jagger. Ron Jagger, the guy who talks about Jesus and has tattoos all over his body and is like all out there about Jesus. And I smiled at her and I said, ah, Sharon, Ron Jagger's your patient, isn't he? I said, I understand HIPAA laws, but you've already played your face card. And she told me she loved Ron Jagger. No provider could take all of his constant Jesus talk, but she just loved him. So she, he was her patient. Understand that John and Sharon almost split up. They had a really bad year. Unfaithfulness was all over the place. There was anger and bitterness and unforgiveness. And Carrie, my wife, sat with Sharon in our back room as she screamed, and I heard those screams, and cried for hours. And John cried and screamed in another room with me for hours with much prayer and the power of Jesus and the resurrection and the God who brings life into our void and our darkness and our depths. Healing and reconciling grace of God's spirit descended. I looked at Sharon that night and I said, Sharon, it's because Jesus Christ met Ron and Jan Jager in California. They traveled to Detroit and told my mom about Jesus and Len. And my mom gave me the Jagers' contact info, who in turn gave me my brother's contact info. And I sent him my dad's stuff and I wrote him these letters. And he, he made me the beneficiary of his insurance policy for whatever reason. That gave us the money to build a home right behind you. Without that money, we would have been renters somewhere else in Moses Lake and never have met. We would have never become friends. And we would have never walked through your marriage darkness together. You and John have said, I looked at her and said this, that Carrie and I, through Christ, saved you both from divorce. That's an... That's an unreal, just a, a wonderful mystery to me. You are now solidly and happily married. And you have these two beautiful high school girls. And you live in this beautiful home. All of this is your story because your Jesus freak patient, Ron Jager, told my mom about the whereabouts of my brother. You wouldn't have two kids if it wasn't for the Jesus freak who told me to contact my brother, who then gave me the money to buy a house right behind you. Right now, this church is called to trust, to live in the faith of this kind of a story of Joseph that goes all the way to the cross. Gary and Don, you're there at the center of it. We're praying. Lacey and Angela, we're praying. And it is hard to trust and love God in the middle of marriage wars, of severe illness, of emotional trauma, financial insecurity, whatever it is. But the promise, the promise is there's a bigger picture. And most of the time, we don't get to see it. God sent a man ahead of them. His name was Joseph, and he was sold as a slave. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. May we live in the, by faith in the reality of this verse. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I pray for my friend Gary. I pray for healing and strength. I pray for peace. I pray for rest in his body and soul and mind.
I pray for wisdom with decisions. Be with Dawn as she stands by the man she loves, as she cares for him and nurtures, is present. Be with Angela, be with Lacey, as they bring joy into Gary and Dawn's life by their presence and their support and their caring. I pray that you would surround that family with your mercy and grace as they live in the mystery of a dark, deep dungeon, trusting and believing in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Be with this congregation as they walk through this time. May they know that you have called them for a particular time just as this. Help them to be patient with not knowing. May they walk faithfully, trusting you in the darkness. May they learn to deep, more deeply love and support and care and listen and pray. Protect your church here at Grace Point in this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name, the one who died, who is risen, and who will come again. Amen. Let me send you out with these words from Romans 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So go enjoy in peace. Yeah.